Architect Joanna Yates disappeared a week ago in Bristol after having drinks with workmates. Police are concerned she may have been abducted. At approximately 8pm on Sunday, the 19th of December, 2010, Greg Reardon returns to his flat in Bristol, which he shared with his girlfriend, Joanna Yates, after a fun yet brief weekend visit to his parents in Sheffield. Greg was eager to see his girlfriend's Joanna, as he was worried about her. He had not heard from her since Friday evening, two days prior. On entering the apartment, something immediately felt different and out of place, as he noticed that the doors were open and the lights were switched on, and what was even more concerning was that Joanna Yates was nowhere to be found. Searching for clues as to her whereabouts, he noticed that she had left her purse, glasses and keys behind, and even worse, her beloved cat, Bernard, looked neglected and frightened. Greg decided to try her phone and he called her, but as he did so, he heard Joanna's familiar ringtone playing from inside her coat pocket, which was sitting in the empty apartment. As the hours passed by, Greg began to panic more and more, and he then decided to call Joanna's parents, hoping that she had left in a hurry to theirs. But when he called them, they told him she wasn't with them. Fearing the worst, he then called their landlord, Christopher Jeffries, to inquire if he had seen or heard anything. However, Greg received the same response, and no one had seen her. Where was Joanna? Would she be found? Would she really have gone outside without her coat? Was she okay? If anybody's got her, don't, don't keep her. Give her back to us. <laughs> we miss her so much. I know that's obvious, and nobody can feel the pain that we feel. I just want her back. Yeah. That's what I want. Whatever state she's in, I just want her back. Things, however, would take a turn for the worst when the lifeless body of a young woman curled up on her side wearing a pink top was found frozen in the snow six days later on the 25th of December, Christmas morning. Joanna Claire Yates was a 25-year-old landscape architect, born on the 19th of April 1985, to her parents, David and Teresa Yates, in Hampshire in England. Joanna had one brother, Christopher Yates, and she was fondly known as Jo by loved ones and friends. As a young girl, Joanna went to school at Embley Park near Romsey, and she then headed to Peter Simmons College for her A-levels, before enrolling in Rittle Architectural College, where she studied landscape design. Joanna then continued her pursuit of more educational knowledge at the University of Gloucester in Cheltenham, where she received her postgraduate diploma in landscape and environment. During her school days, she worked at the Sir Harold Hillier Gardens, where she was said to have designed a beautiful garden made out of her favourite wildflowers. In 2008, Joanna landed a job at an architectural firm called Highland Edgar Driver in Winchester, and here she met her boyfriend, Greg Reardon. When the company moved to Bristol, the couple followed, and they got a flat together at 44 Canninge Road in October 2010. Whilst in Bristol, the couple changed firm and they both got jobs as architects at the Building Design Partnership. Joanna was loved by many, and she quickly became the Miss Popular at her new workplace. Her family and friends described her as a happy, bubbly, successful, professional young lady. Her best friend, Rebecca Scott, said, Just full of life and energy, just really bubbly. The girl had you know, so much life left in her to live, really. She just had this incredible warmth about her as well. And her father, David Yates, said, She 
loved life. She loved doing things with a boyfriend. Uh, she loved doing things around the home. She liked making a home, buying things for the home. She was a really loving daughter. If I had to pick a daughter, I couldn't pick anybody else. Joanna and Greg were very happy in their new lives in their new flat, and together they got a cat called Bernard. And during this time, Joanna completed a master's degree in garden design at Bristol University, and so things were going very well. That was until Joanna Yates disappeared two months later in December of 2010. On Friday the 17th of December 2010, Greg and Joanna went to work as usual, but when their day was over, she took Greg to the train station and kissed him goodbye. Greg had plans to see his parents that weekend in Sheffield so that he and Joanna could spend Christmas the following weekend together. After seeing him off at the train station, Joanna headed towards the pub on Park Streets to meet her colleagues. Being a Friday, Joanna and her colleagues at Bristol Building Design Partnership decided to hang out at Bristol Ram Pub that evening. At the pub, she told her friends how she was excited for the Christmas period and how she contemplated baking for their upcoming Christmas party next week and to maybe go shopping for presents. She did also share with them how she was quite nervous to be home alone this weekend and she wasn't looking forward to a boring weekend alone without Greg, who she had already began to miss. Excited about Christmas but conflicted about staying alone that weekend, she wondered for a second whether she should go and visit her best friend Rebecca Scott and stay with her that weekend in Swansea, but she eventually decided to see Rebecca on Christmas Eve when Greg had returned, so Joanna finished her drink and decided to head home at around 8pm. On her way home, she called her best friend Rebecca Scott and told her about her intended visit on Christmas Eve after which she stopped at a Waitrose supermarket to find what to cook for dinner. However, she was already pretty exhausted from work and didn't have the strength to cook that evening, so she decided to pick up a pizza for dinner. First, however, she wanted to buy some booze to continue that weekend Christmas spirit, so she stopped off at a nearby off-license, Bargain Booze, where she bought two small bottles of cider before heading to a Tesco Express to buy her favourite mozzarella and basil pizza. Having bought all she needed, she continued her walk home, passing through the junction near the Hop House pub where she encountered a priest walking his dog and they joked about the slippery pavement. Finally, she got to her house and entered it and Joanna Yates was never seen alive again. Following the report from her boyfriend at half past midnight, Joanna's parents asked Greg to phone the authorities to report her disappearance, whilst they quickly drove down to her apartment early that morning. On arrival, her parents rechecked the apartment, hoping to find clues to her whereabouts. While checking the kitchen, Teresa, her mother, noticed a Tesco Express pizza receipt. However, she could not find the pizza lying around. Hoping Joanna may have gone close by to dispose of the pizza, her parents, in Greg's company, decided to search around the neighbourhood, pending the arrival of the police. They went around the area, looking at every corner, hoping to see Joanna, even checking in the trunks of cars to see if she had been abducted and tied up, yet there was still no sign of her. Once the authorities arrived, they noted that there was no sign of struggle or forced entry into the apartment, and the only thing out of place was Joanna herself and the missing pizza. I have here a pizza which is similar in all respects to the one we believe she purchased, which is a Tesco's finest um, 
tomato, mozzarella and basil pesto pizza. Within the flat we can find no evidence of this pizza or any of the wrappings. And so I would like to make an appeal, firstly for anyone who has any information about where Joanna is, is now, or any information about this that can indicate what's happened to her. But I'd also like to make an appeal for anyone who knows where this pizza is, or whether any of the wrappings are, or where the box is. They also noticed that she had partially consumed a cider whilst the other one had been left unopened. Initially, they thought she might have gone to see a friend across the street. However, when they realised that she could not have left without her personal belongings or her coat, they soon began to consider the possibility that she had been abducted by someone she knew since there was no signs of forced entry. To aid their search, the authorities traced her last known steps on Friday, interviewing her colleagues, neighbours and friends who had seen her on that day. They discovered CCTV footage from that fateful evening, and it showed Joanna taking the ramp to Bristol Ram Pub on Park Street, where she and her colleagues had a few drinks. Following her time at the pub, another CCTV camera showed Joanna at a Waitrose supermarket at around 10 past 8pm, looking for something to buy for dinner, but she purchased nothing. Her best friend, Rebecca Scott, confirmed with the police that Joanna had called her by 8.30pm and they had spoken for about seven minutes in which Joanna had mentioned coming to visit her in Swansea on Christmas Eve. They then saw that she stopped at the Bargain Booze in Clifton Village to buy two bottles of cider before stopping at a Tesco Express branch where she was captured on CCTV buying a £4.50 mozzarella and basil pizza. Joanna's boyfriend, Greg, also told the police that he had experienced some issues of his Ford car at the apartment on the fateful day before leaving for Sheffield, but was assisted by their landlord, Christopher Jeffries. The police also questioned Joanna's next-door neighbour, Vincent Tabak, and his girlfriend, Tanya Mawson. Tanya told the police that she had travelled out of Bristol for a Christmas work party, while Vincent said he had gone out that evening to get groceries pizza and beer before heading home to watch television. Joanna's neighbour and landlord, Christopher Jeffries, also told the police he was home that Friday evening reading a book and had heard nothing downstairs. Meanwhile, some neighbours from the nearby flats had claimed that they had heard a woman scream around 9.30pm that Friday night, but didn't call the police as they didn't know where it was coming from. Having received this information, the police quickly suspected that Joanna might have been abducted on getting home. However, they still needed more information to back up this theory, and so a search party was formed. Joanna's boyfriend, family and friends set up a website, using various social media platforms to appeal to people with information about her whereabouts to come forth to the police or them. The police searched around the neighbourhood, extending the search far and near Bristol, hoping to find any signs of Joanna, yet no one had seen her. To further aid their search, a police appeal was made by her parents during a police press conference on the 21st of December 2010. I'm missing being able to hold her, cuddle her and just say everything's alright. And I just want her back. Where she is, Joe, my little girl, come back. And if anybody's got her, don't, don't keep her, give her back to us. 
We miss her so much. I know that's obvious. And nobody can feel the pain that we feel. Commenting on her disappearance, Joanna's father said during a broadcast that he felt she had been abducted as it was widely unusual for her to go out without taking her personal belongings. My personal feelings, I think she was abducted from a flat after getting home from a flat. We've got no idea of the circumstances of the abduction, but because of what was left behind in the flat, we feel that she wouldn't have gone out by herself, leaving all those things behind, maybe one of them and um, she was taken away somewhere. Following the appeal from her parents and the police, several calls came in from people who claimed to have seen her that Friday night. However, much of the information provided was not crucial to the investigation. A priest claimed to have seen her around 8.40 to 8.50 p.m. that night while he was walking his dog, and they had briefly chatted about the slippery pavement before she headed towards her home. Still, with no vital information, an even bigger search was conducted, and the police interviewed more people in her neighbourhood. At the same time, her family and friends prayed and hoped that Joanna would return to them safely. But sadly, this did not happen. Six days later, on Christmas morning, in the Clifton suburb areas of Bristol, a couple decided to take their dogs for a walk down the street corner of Longwood Lane in North Somerset, just a few blocks away from their home. Along the way, they noticed a snow-covered mound just a few feet away from the side of the road near the quarry's entrance, approximately three miles away from Joanna's flat. Thinking nothing of it, and believing it could probably be a normal snow-covered mound, they continued their walk, taking their dogs along the road before returning. While passing through the mound, they glanced at it again. However, this time, they saw a pair of blue jeans protruding at a slight corner. Thinking someone might have lost their clothes in the snow, they decided to take a closer look. But on walking closer, they saw the lifeless body of a young woman curled up on her side and she was wearing a pink top that had been pulled up, so they immediately called the police. The following day, confirming everyone's worst nightmare, the police announced that the body found belonged to Joanna Yates. They revealed that she had been found with a missing sock, and a post-mortem examination was carried out, as due to the frozen nature of her body, it was difficult to tell how she had died. The examination revealed that Joanna had died from strangulation, having 43 injuries to her arm, neck and hands. Further examination concluded that she hadn't been sexually abused, and that she had not consumed the pizza she had bought that day, still leaving a mystery as to where the pizza was. They also managed to find a tiny DNA sample on Joanna's body, which examiners immediately began to examine further, hoping it would lead them to their murderer. The examination also indicated that she had been killed somewhere else before being dumped at the location where she was found causing them to believe she had been killed at her home before being placed at Longwood Lane. With this discovery, the police set about their investigations, hunting for a murderer, hoping to piece the puzzle together and to hopefully find out what had truly happened on the evening of the 19th of December. After the discovery of her body, the investigation immediately changed from that of a missing person to a murder case, and the hunt for a murderer began. 
the investigation into her death was one of the biggest in Bristol and it was nicknamed Operation Braid, having over 80 detectives and civilian staff assigned to it under the leadership of Detective Chief Inspector Phil Jones. As standard procedure, the police looked into Greg, Joanna's boyfriend, searching the apartment and his laptop, but they found nothing incriminating, so he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. They also scaffolded and sealed off her building and interviewed her next-door neighbours once more. Vincent Tabak, her neighbour, and his girlfriend Tanya Mawson told them how they were barely present at the flat and had barely known Joanna nor heard any screams that evening, ruling them out as suspects too. With still no breakthrough, the police desperately needed the help of the public, so in a public appeal they urged anyone with helpful information about that day to contact them and help them catch the killer, especially asking for any potential witnesses around the area where her body was found. The team and I have been working tirelessly to analyse information from potential witnesses and the public. A forensic scene is still in place at Canish Road and will remain there until latest this week. We have received over 1,300 pieces of information by email, phone and through direct contact with officers at the scene. Despite this high number of contact, we still want to speak to anyone who may not have already been in touch with us. I cannot stress enough the fact that every single piece of information is important. Detective Chief Inspector Phil Jones in a statement said, I'm sure someone out there has that vital piece of information. We need to catch Joe's killer. I would again urge anyone with any information whatsoever to come forward and help us find the answers that both ourselves and Joe's family want and need. To also aid the investigation, Crime Stopper offered a £10,000 reward to anyone with vital information leading to the arrest and conviction of Joanna's killer. The Sun newspaper also offered an additional £50,000. With all these rewards, the helpline became flooded with calls. Amongst all the calls that were received, a particular caller stated that he had seen a 4x4 light-coloured vehicle around that location that night, so the police began searching for the driver of the vehicle. Another neighbour said they had also seen two men leaving the discovery site that Friday night. The police then decided to explore other alternative theories, looking for similarities between the murder of Joanna and other unsolved cases. They compared her murder to that of Glenis Caruthers, a 20-year-old who was strangled in 1974, as well as the murder of a 25-year-old called Melanie Hall, who disappeared in 1996 and was discovered in 2009, and finally to that of 35-year-old Claudia Lawrence, who disappeared in 2009. Among these murders, Joanna and Melanie had striking similarities, as they both disappeared after returning home from meeting friends and were of the same age but the possibility that they were connected was squashed by authorities, so they continued their hunt, re-interviewing neighbours and appealing to the public. Another neighbour said she had heard two loud screams from the flat next door shortly after 9pm. Another claimed to have heard someone scream, help me, but was unsure of where it came from and could not recall when the incident occurred. During an interview with a nearby neighbour, Gillian Smith, the mother of Louise Smith, an 18-year-old who was assaulted and killed on her way home from a nightclub in 1995 urged the police to collect DNA samples of nearby neighbours, advising that whoever refused to give their sample or tried evading the test might just be their killer. She said this 
as she was using the scenario of her daughter's murder where a 21-year-old student called David Frost had tried to evade giving his DNA sample and it was later discovered that he had, in fact, raped and killed her daughter. However, the police dismissed it, saying it wasn't a priority, hoping that finding Joanna's missing grey sock or pizza would lead to some more clues. They continued broadcasting images of them and appealing to the public for help. I'm here this morning to talk to you about a missing sock. When Joe was found on Christmas Day morning in Longwood Lane, although she was fully clothed, she wasn't wearing her jacket, she wasn't wearing her boots, and she was only wearing one sock. The jacket and the boots had been found at a home address. That would indicate that Joe had returned home. However, at this present time, the sock has not been found. Meanwhile, more campaigns, posters and social media accounts were launched, with thousands of people seeing these. Yet still, they received no vital information to identify a possible suspect. But as luck would have it, her landlord, Christopher Jeffries, told a reporter that he had remembered seeing three people leaving Joanna's flat that night she disappeared. With this information and no other leads to a possible suspect, the authorities began thinking that maybe Christopher Jeffries, her landlord, could be the killer and he might be trying to throw them off by saying this. Christopher Jeffries was a retired English school teacher and a previous headmaster at the nearby public school Clifton College. After his retirement in 2001, he chose to stay home most of the day reading novels. Although a well-known local in the environment, he lived a reserved and archaic lifestyle, having no television and only taking delight in reading. A neighbour described him as a pillar of the society and a very intelligent and sharp man, yet unusual with an affectatious hair. Another described him as a nutty professor with Christopher Jeffries being the only other person who had been in the building all day and who could have easily gained access to Joanna's flat as he was the landlord, coupled with the fact that he had good knowledge that Greg wouldn't be home that night since he helped him fix his car earlier that day, Christopher Jeffries became their prime suspect. With no other potential suspects, the police decided to arrest Christopher Jeffries on suspicion of her murder, and so at 7am on the 30th of December 2010, the police arrived at the flat, and they arrested 65-year-old Christopher Jeffries. He was taken to the local police station for questioning, while a forensic team arrived at his flat to carry out an extensive investigation. They also seized his silver car for closer inspection. However, with no concrete evidence, they had to fight hard to keep him under arrest, and the police thoroughly questioned him, hoping to build a case against him. They even applied for a 12-hour extension to his arrest, which was granted the following day. Despite not being found guilty, police were quickly running out of time, however, and they needed to find some sort of incriminating evidence to tie him to the murder. Meanwhile, the media had already made up their mind, in their eyes, Christopher Jeffries was the outcast and a strange man, and they took a wild interest in him during his arrest, calling him a dark, sinister villain who peeped at Joanna. Anything that I have said, I have said to the police, and I'm not prepared to make any comments to the media. As the police, however, could not find any incriminating evidence tying Christopher to the murder of Joanna, they had to find more information. Originally, three hours after Christopher Jeffrey's arrest, 
Joanna's other neighbour, Vincent Tabak, had called the police, telling them of new information he had remembered. He told them that on that Friday evening, he noticed that Mr Jeffrey's car had changed the position it faced the next morning. By this point, Vincent Tabak was in Amsterdam in the Netherlands with his girlfriend for the new year, so following his call, Detective Constable Karen Thomas was sent to Holland to meet with Vincent Tabak on New Year's Eve to take his statement about Christopher Jeffries. Whilst they were there, in Holland, the detectives also took a swab test from Vincent for DNA testing as they needed DNA samples to test with the unidentified DNA found on Joanna. In that moment, Vincent started showing an increasing amount of concern regarding the forensic result from Joanna's body, and Detective Karen immediately found this suspicious, so she questioned him once more about his whereabouts on that dreadful evening. However, this time Vincent Tabak changed his story, and this just did not add up to the investigators. On getting back to Bristol, Detective Karen replayed her concerns to the team as they continued questioning Christopher Jeffries, who had insisted he had neither seen Vincent Tabak that evening or left the house. Although Christopher's initial statement had remained almost the same, except for his recent addition of seeing three people walk out of Joanna's flat that night, the police still needed something more to tie him to Joanna's death, so they tested his DNA against the one found on Joanna, but it was not a match. However, it was a match for Vincent Tabak. They couldn't, however, identify whether the sample was saliva, semen or from touch, as the sample was of insufficient quality to be evaluated properly. With this new development, Vincent Tabak became the prime suspect, but to prevent a repeat of the unruly discrimination and profiling given to Christopher Jeffries by the media, they thought to approach Vincent differently. A few days later, on the 2nd of January, Christopher Jeffries was released on bail, but he was, however, instructed to stay in town and be readily available for further inquiries. That same January, to aid the investigation and jog the memories of people about the events of that day, a reconstruction of the case tracing the last movements of Joanna was filmed by the BBC television programme Crime Watch. The show appealed to the public to come forth once again with vital information that could help solve the case. Immediately following the filming of the reconstruction was a video appeal of David and Teresa, Joanna's parents. They appealed to the public to call the operation line with information about anyone who had acted strangely. They said, for over three weeks, there has been extensive media coverage of Joe's disappearance and murder. The last few weeks have encompassed an extensive festive period. Many people will have probably been socialising and spending extra time with family and friends. Nearly the whole country has been moved by the tragic events surrounding Joe's murder. Many of us are armchair detectives, but if this activity triggers anything, please come forward. If you do know something and you do not come forward, you are consciously hampering the apprehension of Joe's killer and the perpetrator is still free. You will also be prolonging the torment of Joe's family and friends. Do you know anyone that hasn't been shocked or disturbed? Has anyone you know had an unusual or inexplicable reaction? Was their behaviour unusual on the weekend of the 17th, 18th of 19th of December or throughout the past three weeks? Do you know someone who has been behaving out of character, either by actions or what is said or not said? Do you know someone who has inexplicably become reclusive, quiet or vocal? Please help us identify the killer. Joe was probably acquainted with her killer. 
we are sure the killer will be brought to justice. When this happens, please think how you would feel if you knew the killer and had questions in your mind that you consciously refused to act on. The reconstruction brought about 300 new callers, as many called giving their thoughts on the case, and some providing details of that day. With suspicion looming around Vincent Tabak, they needed to find something solid to arrest him for the murder, and this just so happened. One fateful day, a teary female caller called the helpline, providing crucial information pointing to Vincent Tabak as the killer. However, the details of her call are quite unknown. With this anonymous call, the police believed it was time to have a lengthy chat with Vincent Tabak, who seemed to know more about what happened to Joanna that Friday evening than he was telling. On Thursday, the 20th of January, 2011, at exactly 5.50am, the police arrived at the townhouse where Vincent Tabak and a friend had been staying, following the sealing off of his previous building, which was about 1.8 kilometres away. On arrival, they proceeded to arrest Vincent, on suspicion of the murder of Joanna Yates, taking him to a local police station for questioning, as they inspected his new home for evidence. At the local station, Vincent Tabak was thoroughly questioned about his involvement in the crime, yet he proved uncooperative, providing the police with little information about what truly had happened that day. With only the DNA match as evidence, they continued to dig deeper as they needed more evidence to keep him custody. While searching his computer, the police discovered that he had some suspicious internet searches on sexual assault and Google searches for the average sentence for manslaughter and murder. They also learned through his internet history that he was a vicious lover of violent porn, obsessed with choking and often using the services of escorts. On his laptop was a picture of a slightly blonde lady wearing a pink top pulled up, similar to how Joanna's body had been found. They also discovered that six days before Joanna's body was found, Vincent had been using Google Street View to look at a particular area on Longwood Lane, more precisely to the exact area in which Joanna's body had been found. Finally, on searching his car, they found traces of blood in his boot, which did indeed match back to Joanna Yates. With all this information and his attempt to frame his landlord, Christopher Jeffries, the police became convinced that Vincent Tabak was Joanna's killer, and so two days later, on the 22nd of January, he was charged with the murder of Joanna Yates and remanded in custody while awaiting trial. And although he initially claimed to be innocent, after spending three weeks in custody, Vincent Tabak confessed to a prison chaplain that he had indeed murdered Joanna. Vincent Tabak was born on the 10th of February 1978 in the Netherlands, and he was the youngest of four siblings and was raised in Uden, a small southern town. Childhood acquaintances described him as an intelligent, introverted loner, and he often played alone as he had no friends. Vincent studied at Eindhoven University of Technology, and he later graduated with an MSc in Architecture, Building and Planning. He then went on to study a PhD in which his thesis was a study of how people use space in office buildings and public areas. He had very little friends at university, and he spent most of his time studying alone at his computer, but he was said to be a highly intelligent man. 
he particularly struggled with forming relationships with the opposite sex, and there is little evidence to suggest that he had any girlfriends during this time. It was said that whilst at university, Vincent lived near the red light district, and he had a fascination with the women there, often seeing them as objects rather than people. Following his PhD, Vincent moved to the UK and got a job at the headquarters of Burrow Happold, an engineering consultancy firm in Bath. This new job was quite a contrast to the lonely life he was used to at university. Here he met new people who had different experiences to him, and because he was extremely clever, he quickly learnt how to get along with his new surroundings, often mirroring the behaviour of others. Vincent Tabak even started a relationship with a woman he met through an online dating website in November of 2008, and they then moved in together to a flat in Cannage Road in June of 2009, and Joanna and Greg moved into the neighbouring flat a year later in late 2010. Whilst on business trips in his new job, it was said that Vincent took an interest in women and there were records of him looking up the local sex trade and escorts in the area. Vincent Tabak was also a regular consumer of online hardcore pornography, obsessing over content where women were being choked. On Friday the 17th of December, Vincent Tabak's girlfriend, Tanya, was attending a Christmas office party out of town, whilst Vincent himself retired home after closing from work at his office in Bath. Back in Joanna's flat, after coming home following her drinks with her work colleagues, Joanna opened her cider and looked out of her window. Here she noticed her next-door neighbour, Vincent Tabak, passing by her window, and they exchanged pleasantries. Although the details of what happened next that evening are sketchy, the only known information, as Vincent Tabak would later reveal during his trial, is that Joanna invited him into the house. Vincent claimed that Joanna had made a seemingly flirty remark to Vincent, and he then attempted to kiss her, but Joanna refused. She then started screaming at the top of her voice, but this only angered Vincent more, so to quiet down her screams, he used one hand to cover her mouth, while using the other to choke her and he watched her as life drained from her face. Realising what he had done, Vincent carried Joanna to the trunk of his car and then texted his girlfriend, Tanya, how much he missed her, telling her, Miss you loads, it's boring here without you. Vincent then headed to Asda supermarket in Bedminster to buy some rock salt, crisps and beer. Here he texted his girlfriend again saying, How are you? I am at the Asda buying some crisps. I was bored, cannot wait to pick you up. It was clear to investigators that he was texting his girlfriend in order to get an alibi. Later that night, he went to the quarry site off Longwood Lane, where he disposed of Joanna's body, hoping it would go over the quarry. Meanwhile, when Greg, Joanna's boyfriend, arrived at his parents' house that evening, he texted his girlfriend, inquiring about her time at the pub, but he didn't get any response. Thinking nothing of it, and assuming she had fallen asleep, Greg went to bed, hoping to speak to her the next day. But unbeknownst to him, his loving girlfriend had encountered something far more horrific than spending the weekend alone. A few days later, on the 21st of December, whilst the investigation was completely underway, Vincent Tabak went to work and he emailed his girlfriend's Tanya, saying, I'm so tired, I can't really concentrate. Maybe it's not too bad to have some distraction at work. With being at home now, I'm not sure what to do. What do you think? Wish we could leave for Cambridge this evening and leave the mess behind. Missing you loads. 
his girlfriend Tanya then replied to him, expressing her concerns for her own safety, as she was naturally scared following what had happened to Joanna, and Vincent, still covering his tracks, replied, I will make sure you are not home alone, or have to walk alone. Let's hope nothing bad happened, and she is discovered healthy and well, today or tomorrow. But of course, sick Vincent Tabak knew exactly what had happened to Joanna, and he full well knew that Joanna would not be discovered healthy and well. The trial started on the 4th of October 2011 at the Crown Court in Bristol. Having been charged with the murder of Joanna Yates, Vincent Tabak was set to appear before Mr Justice Field and a 12-man jury. Heading the prosecution was Nigel Likely, who started his opening remarks by stating that Vincent had strangled Joanna using sufficient and deliberate force within a few minutes of arriving at her home on that fateful, unfortunate evening. He said, it's a long time when you have your hand around the throat of another person, and you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. Every second is a continued determination to kill. It was not an instantaneous attack, like a thrust with a knife. He further told the court how Vincent Tabak had used his height, being a foot taller than Joanna and his build, to overpower her, pinning her down by the wrists and inflicting 43 injuries, including a cut and bruise to her head, neck, arms and torso, and a fractured nose during a struggle, describing her death as painful and slow. Despite the evidence against him, Vincent Tabak pleaded not guilty to murder, but admitted manslaughter, as he denied ever having any intention to murder Joanna. Starting his opening statement, the defence, William Clegg, told the jury that he wouldn't ask them to like Vincent Tabak, as there was nothing to like. Neither was there any excuse for his disgusting action of hiding Joanna's body. However, he did state that Vincent Tabak had never intended to kill Joanna, and she had died from cardiac arrest, caused by obstruction to her airways due to choking. William Clegg went on to say that Vincent Tabak had been invited into her home, after which Joanna had seemingly made a flirty remark, which he acted on, causing her to scream. To prevent her from screaming, Vincent Tabak had used one hand to cover her mouth, while using the other to hold her neck. The defence claimed that Vincent had choked her for five minutes, unintentionally causing her death. This situation, as William Clegg described, was a few seconds of madness, a quick-moving, dynamic situation. The prosecution, on the other hand, provided more evidence to the court showing how Vincent Tabak had tried to conceal the crime by disposing her body near a quarry. The jury heard how the DNA swabs taken from Joanna's body perfectly matched that of Vincent Tabak and the fibres in his car, which suggested that Vincent had been in contact with her that day. They also heard how Vincent Tabak had attempted to implicate Christopher Jeffries, the landlord, for the murder, claiming he had gone out that evening. Despite all this evidence, the prosecution found it hard to identify a real motive behind his actions. They stated that it was sexually motivated, despite Vincent Tabak presenting himself as a loving, faithful boyfriend. The prosecution carried on by saying that Vincent had made suspicious internet searches, researching sexual assault, manslaughter, how long it takes a body to decompose, and dates of waste collections in the Clifton area. To support his argument, prosecutor Nigel Likely told the court that Vincent Tabak was a very smart and calculating man who knew what he had been doing that very day. He said, 
Vincent Tabak is very clever. He is intelligent and highly educated. He is dishonest, he is deceitful, and he is a liar. He is when he chooses to be very calculating, making decisions, covering his tracks. There is a word for it, that is shrewd. He also accused Vincent of being calculating in the months following the murder, continuously lying to his family and girlfriend about his whereabouts that evening. Yet despite his intelligence, he failed to stick to the same story as he constantly changed it as more and more evidence emerged. In argument to this, the defence said that Vincent Tabak's inability to remember what had happened that day was due to the trauma he suffered from the incident, and when Vincent Tabak took the stand, when cross-referenced, he wept apologising to the Yates family for his actions, stating he would be haunted for the rest of his life, no matter what sentence he got. However, the jury and the Yates family were not swayed by his tears, and to further decide on the outcome of the case, the jury visited Joanna Yates's flat and reconstructed the events of that day. On the inside, they were shown the window in the kitchen that the defence said yesterday would form a part of their case. They then got to look round the rest of the flat, including the living room, the bedroom and the bathroom. On the inside, you could see clearly uh, where the police investigation had occurred. The carpets had been taken up. There was evidence, evidence of forensic dust all over the walls where they had been looking for fin fingerprint and, and uh, forensic detail. There was also inside the flat a sense of the time of year when this happened, an unopened box of crackers tinsel uh, on the curtain rail and uh, an unopened perhaps Christmas card that was lying on the floor. From here the jury were then taken to where Joanna Yates's body was left in Longwood Lane. After deliberating, the jury comprising of six women and six men delivered a guilty verdict and Justice Field called the murder a dreadful evil act, saying, in my view you are very dangerous, you are thoroughly deceitful, dishonest and manipulative. When you entered her flat on the evening of the 17th of December last year, you did not even know her name and had virtually nothing to do with her. You proceeded to strangle her, intending, in my judgment, to kill her. A dreadful, evil act committed against a vulnerable, unsuspecting young woman in her own home. That wicked act ended the life of a young woman who was entitled to expect a life of happiness and fulfilment. And so, Vincent Tabak was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 20 years. The Yates family were relieved knowing that justice had been served. In a release statement they said, the best we can hope for him is that he spends the rest of his life incarcerated, where his life is a living hell, being the recipient of all the evils, deprivations and degradations that his situation can provide. We will never get over our loss, how she was murdered and the total lack of respect with which her body was treated. We so miss her happy voice and seeing her living life to the full. David and Teresa also added that they weren't elated about the trial and still had mixed feelings, saying, we are feeling mixed emotions, we don't really have any anger. Tabak has shown no remorse, in court he made noises but there was nothing there. Meanwhile, after discovering her body, a memorial was held at Christ Church in Clifton on the 2nd of January 2011. Her boyfriend, Greg Reardon, also started a charity website to honour her memory, soliciting funds to help find missing people. After the release of Joanna's body to her parents on the 31st of December 2011, a funeral service was held on the 11th of February 2011 
at St Mark's of Ampfield in Hampshire. To further honour her memory, her family and friends planted a memorial garden in the shape of a butterfly wing at the Sir Harold Hillier Gardens in Romsey, where she had worked as a student. I think she would have been, well, I think surprised and pleased, and I think she would have been very impressed with it. It's, it's unique and it's different and it's everything that Joe liked, something that's very different. Um, it's always the way she was with things. And uh, yeah, I think she's probably looking down at us now, watching what's going on. <laughs> I think when I think that I'm not going to have my last words with Joe, it brings uh, an air of despair because we have all we're going to ever have with Joe, and I don't think I'm going to come to terms with that. And for me, I, I found her inspiring. If I did things, I'd do them, and then I'd say, Joe, I've done this, and it was always, quite often it was something unusual, and, and I could share it with her, and uh, I'm upset. Similarly, at the Building Design Partnership, where she worked, and the local NHS Trust, both announced plans to commission a memorial garden she had been designing for a hospital in Southmead in Bristol. An annual landscape design prize named after her was held at the University of Gloucestershire alongside a published anthology of her work. Through all these memorials, it was so clear that Joanna Yates was so loved and appreciated. Nevertheless, although justice has been served for the Yates family, her landlord, Christopher Jeffries, had been traumatised and suffered immense discrimination and stigma from the media, profiling him negatively. Well, as far as my family and friends uh, were concerned, obviously they were the subject of a great deal of media harassment, a great deal of media intrusion, and for too long the, the finger of suspicion um, was pointed at me. And as far as I was concerned, well, I think probably the period of nine weeks during which I was still on police bail and when I couldn't return to my flat um, that was the most difficult uh, period that I've experienced. It's certainly not something I would like to have to relive. In a debate he told the people that he was a victim of character assassination by the media presented as a dark, macabre, sinister villain, a lewd figure and a peeping Tom. It was certainly suggested that um, there may well have been some sort of sexual motivation for the murder of Joanna Yates and at the time, obviously, um, I was suspected of that murder. Um, on the other hand, it was suggested in some of the articles that um, I was gay, so that created a bit of a problem as far as um, that particular line um, was concerned. And I think it was then suggested in another article that the answer might be that I was bisexual, so um, the press were trying to have it every possible way. Christopher Jeffries sought justice, suing eight newspapers over the allegations and the profiling they made of him. Luckily he won, and in December of 2014, he commissioned a drama with ITV titled The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries. This television drama series would go on to win the award for the best miniseries at the 2015 British Academy Television Awards. Overall, the murder of Joanna Yates is more than a tragic event. It is also heartbreaking and undeserving. No one deserves to die untimely, and worse, in the comfort of their own home during the festive period. As always, my heart goes out to the Yates family and her then-boyfriend Greg Reardon, who all have had to deal with the void and pain of losing a daughter, a sister and a girlfriend. Also, to Christopher Jeffries, who was wrongfully vilified for a crime he did not commit and painted as a monster, despite having no knowledge of what transpired that night. Nevertheless, so many questions are yet to be answered, and I hope that one day, Vincent Tabak 
reveals the real truth of what really happened that night, providing Joanna's family with the closure they deserve. I think Justice Field's words were spot on, that this was truly a wicked act, and no woman's opportunity of having a life filled with happiness and fulfillment should ever be taken away from her. And as always, rest in peace, Joanna Yates.